Let's thank the Lord. Thank you, Father, for being our Father in heaven, who's holy and righteous and all your ways are good. We thank you for your word that we can study this morning. We thank you for the opportunity you've given us to gather as one, brothers and sisters in you, one in Jesus Christ. And thank you for your great love that you've demonstrated through Christ on the cross and that we can see demonstrated every day through one another. Thank you, Lord, that you are alive and you're powerful and you wish to reveal yourself to us. And I pray you'd open our eyes to see your holiness and your awesome power today in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if it's common here, but in uh, the States, it's very common to have what's called a yearbook. So you get one of these, um, which was, uh, I had it all through high school. So it was about 2,000 students in my high school, and uh, there would be pictures of people playing sport and uh, all kinds of things. If you're really curious, you're welcome to come up and take a look at it later. But it's like a book of everyone in your class and you're looking like, where am I? Are there any candid photos of me in this book? And uh, one, of the, one of the interesting parts is the school standouts. So those graduating seniors, they vote on different categories that they would be a standout in, like prettiest eyes. I don't know how they came up with that one. Uh, most talented or best dressed or best athlete or class clown. Um, now, I just to... If you're curious, I was not nominated for anything. If I was to be nominated for something, it would probably have been weirdest sense of humor or worst taste in music. That, that probably would have been my category. Um, but today we're reading about Saul of Tarsus, who if he had a high school um, manual, he would have been a shoo-in for the least likely to become a Christian. He was so filled with hatred and animosity against Christ and his followers. And yet, today we read of his conversion. So we'll be in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And we read of the miraculous conversion of the eunuch, who was approached by Philip as he was reading the book of Isaiah. Beginning at that scripture in Isaiah 53, he preached Christ to him. And his response was, well, hey, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And he went on his way rejoicing after the Lord caught Philip away uh, he was confused. He was unsure about what the scriptures were saying. He, he, he said, how can I understand them except someone helps me? And then after he is born again, he goes his way rejoicing. Philip continues on to be preaching in Gentile cities. And as we read through these interactions in Acts, we see God's power is, it, it brings about transformation in the lives of people. It changes people from being confused to being having clarity. People in darkness coming to the light. People who are lost being found. There's a total transformation in them. And we're going to see that in the life of Saul. That God in his grace is able to save those most opposed to him and make them his chosen vessels for his glory. He, you wouldn't have chosen Saul, but God did. And he used him mightily, as we'll read. So Acts chapter 9, verse 1 says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul's first mentioned when he consented to the death of Stephen in Jerusalem. 
It said he made havoc of the church. He entered houses. He dragged away Christians to be imprisoned. And as the persecution of the church continued in Jerusalem, the the Christians fanned out into the surrounding regions. But it did not quench his hatred and persecution of Christ and the church. He breathed in oxygen like the rest of us, but it says he breathed out in uh, threats and murder against Christians. He hated them, and he was not content that there would be one Christian in the world. He was going to hunt them down and persecute them. He later would write in Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. He had a vendetta. He took it upon himself to, to just smash this uprising uh, of Christianity. He sought authority from the high priest to go to the synagogues of Damascus. It's about 210 kilometers away to persecute believers if should he find them there. Did you notice how the Christian faith is referred to? It's called the way. Any of the way. In a day of rampant polytheism, Judaism and Christianity, they stood alone as monotheistic, but they were distinct in that um, this huge difference the, in Judaism, they followed the law given by Moses, thinking that in the scriptures and the keeping of them, they had eternal life, but, and they kept the traditions of men as the commands of God. Yet Christ came as the Son of God, the promised Messiah, who fulfilled the law. He came according to the prophets. God made flesh, and he said, the way is, is through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said in John 14, 6. And the word is the same, where it says, anyone of the way, anyone who is of Jesus, he is the way. He's the only way that we can go to the Father. There's many religions, but only one way to God. There are many beliefs, but only one gospel that has the power to save and to transform lives. There's many things people do to try to earn their salvation, but there's only one way of atonement through faith in Jesus, to have our sins washed away. In the 70s, it was a common greeting for those called Jesus freaks out of scorn to greet one another like this. It meant one way. And that was just to say, Jesus is the only way to heaven. And that was kind of a greeting among those people. Having an audience with God going to heaven, it's not like Google Maps where you can put in, I want to arrive on this day or I'm going to leave at this time. We don't know that. Our times are in God's hands. Nor can you chose, choose the mode of transportation. You know, you, walking, trains, ferries. There's only one way. And the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. There's no other way that we can know the Father except through him. Verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. As Saul and the men who traveled with him approached Damascus, about a six-day journey by foot, suddenly a bright light shines around them. And Saul also shares this story in Acts 22 and Acts 26. Acts 22 tells us it happened about noon. Interestingly, that's a time when Orthodox Jews would have been praying. That was a time of prayer. So it would be very ironic, wouldn't it, for Saul to have uh, 
about to approach God in prayer, and suddenly Jesus appears to him. Uh, Acts 26 says the brightness of the light was greater than that of the sun. So we know it was noon, the sun was out, but this light was much greater than that of the sun, and he fell to the ground, and he hears this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? And the voice continued, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Jesus is Lord. I like the connection there. Saul had been persecuting Christians, and Jesus took this personally. In persecuting Christians, it was Jesus who was being persecuted. And this should be a comfort to us, that when we're persecuted for the sake of Christ, just like you are keenly aware of when you get that paper cut on your finger or you stub your toe, Jesus is fully aware of any part of his body that is suffering for his sake. And it won't be from his negligence or his carelessness. He will have allowed this for his redemptive purposes. And he is able to both comfort us in our affliction, like, like when you do a little first aid on your finger, but he's also able to avenge us as he does here. He doesn't avenge those who, are, uh, who have been persecuted, but he calls Saul out for it and he pretty much arrested him on the way for his crimes. And he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a goad would be a stick, usually with a very sharp end, that would be used to prod cattle or oxen to move in the correct direction. It wasn't intended to maim or to injure the animal, but it would definitely get their attention when they were stabbed with this goad. And he says, Saul, you're kicking against the goads. It's hard to do that. As if, if you think about it, if this animal is harnessed and it has a yoke on it and you prod it in a direction and it kicks hard against that goad, well, pain is a pretty good teacher. You realize that hurts and I shouldn't do that and really I need to respond in the correct way. Um, And to think that you could, by kicking, destroy the goad and that it wouldn't come back ever again, well, you just get another stick, right? So it wasn't, he, all he was doing was hurting himself by kicking against the goads. God had been speaking to him. His conscience had been um, quickened by the Lord. And God had been prodding him and poking him and, and making him think about perhaps even what Stephen said when Stephen died. And said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And he sat there and he, he saw him die. And he thought, he, he knew the word as well. And as he read the word, there were things that God was showing him, saying, look, this is pointing to Jesus. And he kicked back against it. But all he was doing was hurting himself, and and Jesus graciously intervened. Here's a man heading to destruction, and he is seeking to bring destruction, and God arrests him on the road. Verse 6, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Saul did not believe in Jesus, that he was the Son of God, and yet the Lord, Jesus Christ, met him on the road. It's very possible that Saul heard Jesus speak during his travels to Jerusalem. We know that Saul was trained under Gamaliel. 
And uh, it's possible he recognized this voice that he had heard before. I don't know, but he did not question that it was Jesus speaking to him and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He had resigned himself now, being broken to the lordship of Christ, the guidance of Jesus. What do you want me to do? I'm done kicking against the goads. He called Jesus Lord, Kyrios. That's in the Greek. And he said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what to do. He didn't tell him who would be speaking to him at this point, when it would happen, how anyone would find him. There's a lot that he's not told here, but he's told the next thing, arise and go into the city. And he does a wise thing without questioning or um, kicking against the command. He does what he's told. It's so interesting that he's looking for Christians to persecute, but now he finds himself blind. He opens his eyes and he sees no one. So the bright light blinded him. The Lord blinded him on the way. And the men that were with him, it says, they heard a voice but saw no one. It's common for people to say that Saul fell off his high horse or his donkey or something. Uh, Some paintings illustrate this. A lot of the, the paintings you'll see of Saul of Tarsus and his conversion involve animals that he would have ridden on. Uh, But there's no evidence in the Bible to support this whatsoever. Um, The evidence is actually on the contrary, that they had traveled that distance on foot. And it says, um, and the way that I come to this conclusion, is that in this passage, nor in Acts 22 or 26, is there any mention of an animal. And you can only go as fast as your slowest people if you were going in a caravan. So it would have made little sense for, for Saul to be riding on a horse and for the rest to be walking on foot. It would have been like, what's the point? Um, also, when they lead him by the hand into Damascus, he did not mount an animal. They led him by the hand. Had he ridden an animal, they would have put him on the beast and led the beast in. So there's a lot of evidence that he, he walked. And it just struck me like, what? hatred this guy had what a vendetta that he would walk 200 k's to persecute christians i mean i don't even know how far that is it's basically like walking to newcastle right it's like there's some christians over there there could be if there's some christians there i'm going to find them and i'm going to bring them back to jerusalem and i'm willing to walk all that way to find them and bring them back that is that is commitment serious commitment commitment to hatred For three days, it says he neither ate nor drank. Perhaps in the darkness, he realized how blind he had been to the truth of Jesus Christ, the light of the gospel. And his circumstances reflected his spiritual condition, that he was hungry, he was thirsty, he was blind, he was helpless. He couldn't do anything on his own. He was without hope or power to save himself. He couldn't help himself see. Have you ever been there, my friends? Have you ever been at that helpless place where you realize, I cannot do this. I cannot change. I cannot help myself. And Jesus is the Son of God. And maybe there's a new life for me in him. There is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has come to us. Now verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, 
Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. God blinded Saul without any human contact, and he could have chosen to heal him of his blindness miraculously without anyone. But he had his, the one who had his eye on Saul also had his eye on someone named Ananias. He's just a disciple. He's a disciple of Jesus who lived in Damascus, a person that if Saul had found him when he was seeing, before meeting Jesus, he would have sought to persecute. So he sends, God sends Ananias, someone who would have been persecuted, to help a man, to heal a man, and to bring a man into the kingdom of God who previously hated him and wanted to destroy him. So there's this vision he has. The Lord appears, and he says, Here I am, Lord. And God says, Go to the straight street, the street called Straight. Inquire at the house of Judas for one Saul of Tarsus. And get this, for behold, he is praying. The Orthodox Jews pray uh, according to their book of prayers. They have traditional prayers that they say. And this may have been the very first time ever that Paul was praying through Jesus Christ, his mediator and intercessor, that he was praying to God through Jesus And uh, Jesus is like, yep, he's praying. So go to him. He's received this vision that Ananias is going to come, as we'll see. I don't know what Saul prayed, but Ananias was a part of God's answer to those prayers. Isn't it cool that God would have you to be the answer to someone else's prayer? That someone's been praying that you don't know. Maybe someone, and he has you praying for them, and, and they they can be the answer to your prayer. You can be the answer to their prayer through Jesus. Saul was blind, but God gave him insight, didn't he? He he brought comfort to him. So he's not able to see with his eyes, but he realizes there's a man called Ananias who's going to come, he's going to lay his hands on me, and I'll be able to see again. Don't know when, but he was praying. I'm sure he was praying like, Lord, help it to be very soon. Verse 13, then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. If you remember back when Philip was told by the angel to go into the the desert, he went without resistance. Does Ananias go immediately when God appears to him and says, go? No, he doesn't. He he gently pushes back. He he reminds God about some things, um, despite clear guidance from God. I mean, this is God speaking. You know, I've I've heard of this guy. I've heard that he's done a lot of harmful things to Christians. It's a bit ridiculous, right, that we would point something out to God as if he doesn't know? Like, have you considered this God? Anyone ever done that? (laughs) And he he goes on. He even has authority from the chief priest to arrest people who call upon your name. And I love that in God's answer, he does not address any of these concerns. He doesn't mention them at all. 
He says, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Jesus knew who Saul was. He knew what he had done. He knew what he planned to do. And he knew what authority he had to do it. He knew all of that. But God chose him. He had plan- God was greater than all those things, and he had plans for Saul that he would see brought about. Out of grace. What, was Saul or Ananias worthy to follow Jesus Christ or to serve him in any way? No. It was by God's grace that they had been calling, called. It was by God's grace that they had had a revelation of God. It wasn't because they were worthy. It's because God loved them, and he chose them. Ananias would have never picked Saul, but God did. And there's plenty of people that we wouldn't pick as like, oh yeah, I see potential in that guy. We're like, Lord, help that guy to die. Look at all the bad things he's doing. You know, kill him, Lord, wipe him off the earth. He doesn't deserve to live. And then it comes back on us a little bit. It's like, well, what about you? Do you deserve life? Do you deserve salvation? Do you deserve my grace? Well, no, but. (laughs) You know, given all we have said, given all what we have done, even after having had our eyes opened, God still wants to use you. He still has a purpose for your life. He wants to use you in a marvelous way, in a way that you go, well, I'm unworthy of that. To go before kings, Gentiles, and the Jews? Let's not for a moment believe, based upon the latter fruitfulness of Saul, that he was in any way deserving or worthy to be chosen. To look at his life and go, well, yeah, he had the background. He had the, you know, the pedigree. He was the perfect man for the job. No, he was not the perfect man. He was the worst man. But God used that pedigree. And he used his background to humble him, to teach him and to make him his chosen vessel. He's like, he's my chosen vessel. And who can argue with God about who he chooses? Saul, who became Paul, he looked at his life later, and anything that could have been considered an accomplishment, he says, it's just rubbish. It's dung. It's nothing. It's refuse to me. I want to know Jesus, and I want to follow him. May that be our rallying cry. God had revealed himself to Saul, and he said to Ananias, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God had chosen and called Saul, but this service unto the Lord would include suffering for Christ's sake. There would be pain and difficulty along the way. Saul, who had persecuted Christians, he would find himself persecuted. He would be the object of scorn and violence. He would be troubled by a messenger of Satan that God allowed to buffet him. And later he listed some of the trials that he suffered in 2 Corinthians 11, 26 and 27. This is just some of them. He says, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And he goes on and on. But no, in all the suffering God allows, he provides abundant consolation. 
that is a great blessing from the Lord, that when we suffer, and sometimes we suffer because of the consequence of our own choices, when we repent and seek the Lord, he will be found by us, and he will comfort us. He will be there for us. Could you turn, please, in your Bibles to what Saul wrote later in Romans 8, verse 16 through 18? We, we have such a privilege to be called the children of God. That, that is a great privilege that God has given us by his grace. He says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. God has chosen us. And in response to that call, through faith in him, we become his children. And if children, well, let's read Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So if we're children of God, then we're heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs with him. And if we suffer with him, we'll be glorified together. Suffering is temporary. Glorification with Christ in the kingdom of God is forever. And no one can take that away from you. I'm amazed at the the physical suffering people are willing to pay for to, to have a surgery or to, you know, even go to the gym and commit to, to some temporary improvement of their physique or appearance something that they you know hey I'd, I'd like to look this way so i'm willing to commit to that and the sacrifices they'll make with their their diet and this time involved in exercise and the money involved with it they're willing to suffer a lot i mean we're watching the olympics and you think wow look who who would have ever thought to do, do the skeleton you know dive head first go 120 k's on on ice to just compete once every so often you know, this is your life, you know, and they, they are fully committed to it. No one is accidentally there. They rock up and, oh, here, here's, you're new on the job, here's your helmet, and go jump on that thing and hope you live. <laughs> There's no suffering for Christ's sake today that's comparable, comparable in any way to the eternal and awesome glory that awaits us and the presence of God that we can have even now. Nothing can match that. You can have everything in this world and be completely empty, be completely hopeless and without comfort. But in Christ, we have all things in this life and in the life to come. Jesus suffered. He was not robbed of the joy. He says, these things I've spoken to you that your joy may be full. Now, Jesus is able to give fullness of joy because he has fullness of joy. And through the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience. These are things God gives in abundance that have no end in sight. It's an infinite supply that he offers. And when Jesus died and he suffered on the cross, and he did suffer, he had his joy. The joy would not be taken from him. It says, for the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So let's look to him and, and not be discouraged in this light affliction, which is but for a moment, he would say. Back to Acts 9, verse 17. 
And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Ananias was faithful to obey the command of the Lord, eventually, after that little discussion. He laid his hands on him. He found the street. He inquired at the house. God led him right to the man, the one he had heard so much about. And he put his hands on him. And he said, Brother Saul. Hmm. That is remarkable. That is the love of God who will adopt anyone into his family, even the ones who have hurt him, the ones who have hated him. God invites the unworthy ones to be adopted as his children. Consider what it meant to be called a brother that day, where Saul, who was blind, I'm sure he did some soul-searching in that room as he fasted and prayed. And I imagine as he sat in darkness, he felt very lost because he knew what it would cost for him to leave the Orthodox Jews, to leave the only people he knew, the ones that he respected, the ones that he was, um, the mob that he was involved with. He was high ranking, and this meant a loss of everything, a loss of his prestige, a loss of his income, a loss of the respect that he craved and coveted. And on the other side, the Christians he had persecuted. Those that he had sought and gone far and wide to haul off to prison. They all had heard about him. Ananias heard about all that he had done. And he was a bit reluctant to even go. And so he's really caught in the middle, Saul. He's like, well, I'm leaving everything I know. But if I come to Christ, will they even receive me? Is my life over? I'm sure he was thinking along those lines. Well, I guess I I would be thinking along those lines. But if Jesus is the Son of God, then there was new life for him. There was hope for him. There was family and companionship. Maybe a new life was only beginning. And I love that in the church where Jesus Christ is head, we are all members of his body and members of one another, that he has made us brothers and sisters in him. We are connected And we don't have to be, we shouldn't be viewing one another as, let's say, the brother or sister. That's a little embarrassing in social engagements. You're like, well, yeah, I love him. You know, he is family. Like, I have to. Obligation. That's not God's love. God's love is like, I love that guy. I I really do. If I could choose anyone, I'd choose him. Even though he's not worthy. He may be awkward. He may have a weird sense of humor. He may have terrible taste in music, but I still love that guy, and I'll choose him to do something for me. Do we treat one another with the love, kindness, forgiveness, and grace that you have received from Jesus? You know that in family, there's a history there, a long memory of things that were said and done that that still sting, that still bug us. We may have said something about it, but but still, it's there. Let's not be of those who love out of obligation, 
but out of grace, as we've received from God, that we would reach out to them, we'd pray with them, we'd desire to minister to them and with them for the sake of Christ. Ananias, he tells brother Saul, Jesus has sent me so you would receive your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 says, something like scales fell off of his eyes, then he was able to see. It's quite odd. Um, But his first action, like, I don't know what it looked like. I'm like, would you keep them? I guess not. Kind of like, get those things away from me. His first action was to be baptized in the name of the Father, Jesus Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He had kicked back against Jesus for a long time. Finally, he was broken at that revelation of Christ. He did not desire to meet Christ. He was not seeking after Christ, but Christ met him. And how we need that, don't we? The people in this world need Jesus. They need to to have a revelation of him whether they want to or not. And you go, well, you're going to see Jesus, and we try to force it. You know, Jesus is able to operate completely by himself, and yet he chooses to use us as as his ministers. So praise the Lord that he would bring us into that and say, hey, be my yoke fellow, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am lowly and meek. In me you'll find rest for your souls. So it's not us striving to make sure that everybody hears. Let's see that other people hear as we're obedient to him. Saul receives food. He was baptized. And it says he continued with the disciples at Damascus for some days. And I'm sure the drastic change in him had an effect upon those people who led him blind into the city. His muscle, his companions, those that when he's breathing out threats and murder all along the way for six days and before, all the way from Jerusalem to Damascus, and suddenly here's this man blinded by a light, they've heard a voice, and they lead him by the hand. It's a different man. The one who railed against Christians after three days then became one. And those who he sought to persecute and destroy, they have now rallied to him. They have received him and continued with him. So he didn't just continue with them, but they continued with him. They were coming to him and ministering to him and blessing him and conversing with him, and spending time with him. I'm sure the church was greatly encouraged by this. I mean, the power of the gospel, the power of Jesus, where the one who came to kill us and and rip apart our families, he's changed now, totally different. He's one of us. He's been born again. Man, there's no one that God can't save. There's no one he can't use. May God quicken our faith as well when we read this. Acts 9.20 Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When Saul received the Holy Spirit, we see the Spirit's manifestation of power through the gift of teaching. He went immediately into the synagogues in Damascus and preached Jesus. 
with great boldness, he went in and preached that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I like what John Gusick wrote about it, what it meant to say the Son of God. It says, when Jesus called himself the Son of God, and when others called him that, it was understood in a clear claim to his deity. In fact, on two occasions when Jesus called himself the Son of God, he was accused of blasphemy, of calling himself God. That's in John 5, 17 and 18, and Matthew 26, 63 through 65. Everybody knew what Jesus meant in calling himself Son of God, and everyone knew what Saul meant when he preached that Jesus is the Son of God. So it's a clear claim to deity that he was God. God made flesh. What was the response of the people in the text? It says, all who heard were amazed. Here's Saul, the chief persecutor of the church. He was famous for his hatred uh, and commitment to destroying the church, and now he's preaching Christ. Like, what a shock. I'm sure there was some correspondence between him and Damascus, and he said, hey guys, I'm coming up. I hear that there's problems, and don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And now he's preaching Jesus in the synagogue. Not like in the markets. He's in the synagogue. I'm sure he was preaching in the markets as well. But here in our text, it says he preached in the synagogues. I love that he goes to Damascus for the chief aim. Everybody knows this as well. Everybody knew it. The chief aim to persecute Christians, but he became a Christian and then was preaching Christ. So no one is beyond God's power to save or transform. It says he increased in strength. He confounded all the Jews. God used his great uh, breadth of Scripture, his knowledge of Scripture, uh, now used through the Holy Spirit to point out and to prove from the very Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And they had no idea what to do with this guy. They could not say a word against it. Thrown into confusion, they were perplexed and stirred up. That's what that word means. Now I'm going to ask you a loaded question. Do you believe God saves people so they will go to heaven? I believe he does. But that is not the only reason. If we're only concerned about the salvation for others, because otherwise they're headed for hell rather than heaven, we miss the purpose that God has for people that he has for their life on earth after their conversion. God didn't save Saul and make him Paul just so he would go to heaven. He had a plan for into glory, Saul who became Paul. But first, he would be his witness and ambassador on earth. So let's not miss that, that God hasn't just saved you for heaven. He has saved you to be his ambassador now. He has a purpose for your life now. He has a calling upon you. He's chosen you to be his ambassador now. This testimony of a transformed life, it sent a message to everyone who knew him that Saul had miraculously, unquestionably, completely changed because he had an encounter with the living Christ. We, as humans, we have this chameleon-like ability to adapt to our environment. Um, depending on the people who we're around, we can talk a different way. We can talk about different things. We can be, seem like we're really interested in something that's not really our greatest interest, but we can weigh in on that subject and we can have a conversation. And um, But when Jesus changes you from the inside, 
we begin to reject things we once loved to do. And he changes the way we think that the things that we used to believe, we don't believe them anymore, and therefore we do not follow them anymore. We begin to see things from a a new perspective that is completely foreign to the way that we used to see others and the world, even God. So you who claim to be born again, are you different now than you were before Christ? Is there a change that's happened in your life from when you made a profession of faith in Christ and how you are today? And, And are you continuing to be changed? Do you see him working in your life? Are there things that you refuse to do now and you that are distasteful in every way because it's not part of your new nature? You have no appetite for those things anymore. This sort of transformation should mark us too. When I look back to high school, I see I'm a totally different person than I used to be. The things that people remember me for, the things that they maybe even liked about me, uh, they're no longer part of me. They're no longer part of my life because God has transformed me and changed me into a different person. And he's not done. He wants to, us to keep changing more into his, his image. And I'm grateful for the way that God uses um, moments in our life and also other Christians, like Ananias came along, Saul, when he was in his time of need, he was willing to lay hands on him, to pray with him. And we see this change. It was a change that, that no person can make for another. God does. May we be an Ananias for Saul or a born-again Saul to the unbelieving Jews. Wherever, whatever God wants you to be in that season, let's be that. Verse 23. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Paul continues to contend for faith, and as the Christians were in those days, it was not long before they were sought to be killed. (laughs) They're like, all right, he's confounding us, he's annoyance, he keeps showing up in these synagogues and contending with us, that's it, it's time to off this guy. Um, So they plotted to murder him when he went through the gate. We read... In greater detail, in 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33, it says, In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hand. So it wasn't just the Jews who were involved in this plot. The governor was involved and a garrison. So you have all these soldiers, right? And they're monitoring the gates. They're like, when he comes through the gate, that's when we're going to get him. And so they're like, they're watching the gates. You can't leave. Well, he's lowered by Christians outside the city walls in a basket. It's very ironic. The people that he sought to destroy were the ones who helped him be delivered safely from the city. Consider the manner of Saul's arrival and his departure from Damascus. He entered blind at midday, and he left at night, seeing perfectly. He was led by the hand through the gate of the city by those aiding him to persecute the church, and he was lowered in a basket by Christians who received him as a dear brother. He entered the city with a group, and he left alone. Or did he? 
He did not, there was no one else in that basket. We only read of him, but Jesus was with him. Jesus accompanied him all the way back to Jerusalem because that's where he went. So he walked back rejoicing. Having escaped death, he was a harbinger of death. And now he had been delivered. He had been saved. In the darkest dungeon, in the fiercest tempest, during the worst torments, Saul would be upheld and consoled in the arms of a loving Savior. Having been filled with the Spirit, he had fellowship with God. I just, I love the transformation we see here. He would go on to make disciples of Jesus Christ. He would write a large portion of the New Testament. And despite the suffering, he would walk worthy of that chosen vessel to bring the name of Jesus before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Saul's conversion is unique. It was initiated by an appearance of the risen Christ, but it's also similar to a lot of our experiences because we've had people lay hands on us and pray with us and treat us as a brother or a sister, though we have we live we may have uh, been born far away from one another. Had Ananias met Saul before Saul met Jesus, the manner of their meeting would have been very different. And God's able to do that, to transform people and to change that. Could you please turn in your Bibles as we close to 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. People need a revelation of Jesus Christ to be born again. There's no other mention in Scripture of this sort of conversion. Of course, Jesus Christ can appear to any at his will, at will, whenever he wants. But God has called us and he has chosen us as his children to be his ambassadors so that lost souls will repent of sin and be reconciled to God so that they will know him and that they will serve him now, praise him, and live with him forever. So in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, it says, Therefore, and this is, this is Saul who became Paul writing, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So we have been reconciled. If you're not sure what your ministry is, well, here's a couple. That's God's will for your life as a believer. We've been reconciled, so to us has been given the ministry of reconciliation. To see people reconciled to Jesus. That is your ministry. That is my ministry. And then it says, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We have the word of God. The truth through which people can be reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. And it says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. So, since these things are true, since we have this ministry of reconciliation, we've been given the word of reconciliation, us having been reconciled to Christ, we are ambassadors. And then he implores 
believers be reconciled to God. To be an ambassador, we must be reconciled to God. There must be agreement between his word and us, the way we live, the way we speak. To have our sins atoned for, to be restored to friendly terms. That's what to be reconciled means. Or you think about relationships being reconciled. There's a reconciliation. It's not just like a legal term. This is um, theological, that we'd be reconciled to God and then have our lives reconciled with his in agreement with what he has said. Paul was kicking against the goads when he was Saul. And we can kick too. Let's not kick against the goads when he is prompting us, when he is leading us to go in a direction that we maybe don't like. Let's be willing, servants. Remember Christ, he says, take my yoke upon you. You will not be alone. Whether you, you know, one day you can't see with your eyes, God will give you insight. Or you're at risk of death and you're in a basket and you're like, how did I get here? Well, know that you're not alone. Jesus is with us. He will not leave or forsake us. Let's not shrink back from suffering because God gives us the abundant consolation. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are good and gracious to us for this just marvelous passage where Saul came to faith in Jesus Christ, where he was transformed and changed. And I pray, Lord, that our lives too would be marked with such transformation, that all things would become new, that the old would pass away, that the things which marked our lives apart from you, we would no longer love them, we would no longer uh, have our affections placed upon them, but we would love you, Lord. Our lives would be reconciled to yours. We would be your faithful ambassadors. We would plead on your behalf that others would receive your salvation through faith in Jesus. Help us to be those, Lord, who Take seriously this ministry you've committed to us, the ministry of reconciliation uh, and the word of reconciliation. And thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit who helps us in all of our weaknesses and our infirmities and that in our weakness, you are strong. Thank you, Father, for your great love. Thank you for your transforming power. I pray that you would increase our faith and that we would be bold to speak your name and to, uh, if anything is is seen to be good in us, Lord, we would attribute it only to you by your grace. Thank you for calling us, Lord. Thank you for choosing us. Please open our eyes to see you in your glory. And Lord, give us great expectancy uh, to rejoice in being glorified with you. In Jesus' name, amen.